0: I'm doing a lot of gesticulations. I don't know if you can see it, but I'm doing it. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am Stephanie Butnick, and I'm joined by my two co-hosts, tablet editor at large, Leah Leibovitz.
1: Who once again did not win a Grammy.
0: And my other co-host, who maybe did win a Grammy, Joshua Molina.
1: I forgot to go again the Grammys.
0: You forgot to go.
1: I don't even know if I won. Don't be shy. You just didn't want to take, you know, the spotlight away
2: from Joni Mitchell. That was very kind of you.
1: I was hoping to win a Grammy and thank the God of the Jews. If anyone would ever just give me an award of some sort, I would thank the God of the Hebrews, and I think it would be a great <laughs> moment. So,
0: <laughs> We have a jam-packed, info-packed show for you today. Our Jewish guest is Richard Sandler. He's a lawyer and the author of the new book, Witness to a Prosecution, The Myth of Michael Milken. We will find out that this is a Liel obsession. He and Josh get to talk to Richard about all things financial. About Jews and money. All things fiduciary. How about that? And our Gentile of the Week is Alan Houston. You got that right. That is former Nick, NBA all-star. He is amazing. And he joins us to tell us about his new faith-based initiative, and the Jewish teen who's helping him on the ground. We cover everything today, I would say. Uh, there's there's no stone left unturned. Money and basketball. Yes, if exactly.
2: If you need more things than that in your life, <laughs> I don't know what you're even doing. You're doing it wrong.
0: So what's going on? Where in the world is Joshua Molina?
1: Yeah, I'm sorry to say, due to an extraordinary lack of foresight, I'm in my car.
0: I thought you were going to say outside foreskin. of
1: my hotel. I, I also have an extraordinary lack of foreskin. That is true. I'm sorry.
0: Uh, I feel like I crossed the line there. I'm sorry,
1: guys. No, there are no lines. I'm in Palm Desert, where I participated yesterday in NPR's Selected Shorts, which is actors, performers reading short stories, which was a lot of fun. I planned to beat it back to Los Angeles early this morning. Decided not to to try to time it with the rain, and as a result, here I am in low quality audio without my equipment in my car. I have two things to say about this.
2: First of all, Selected Shorts. Is a very good name for a series in which Jewish actors just read things out loud. It's like and now, selected George <laughs> Hebrews. Five foot seven Breckenmeyer. Is he a Jew? I don't know I why like, he came to mind. Because he's, like he's dating. Because uh, he's dating Bob Saget's wife now. We'll take
0: him. Oh, really? Yeah. I did not know so that. that. Wow, that, that is like a mind. real nineties. Second of all, can TV I
2: tell TV. you, Josh and Melina, there is really nothing that amuses, I think, New Yorkers more than to see the way Angelinos react when there is rain.
1: Oh, I know. Can't deal with it at all. Like everyone, this is not a drill.
0: And this is definitely a lot of rain, right? Like objectively, a lot of rain is happening right now.
1: Kids in LA are having a rain day.
0: A rain day? I believe so. I did something wild last night, something I have never done before. I have never done anything even close to what I did last night. I went to the international gathering of Chabad Shluchos. Oh. Shluchos, am I saying this right? Nah, it's okay. Shluchos, That's I what th- they say. I the shluchos, No, that's ex- ex- how they say ex- it. No, zim, that's zim. how they say it. shluchos. Okay, so every year, all of the Chabad families who are around the world—they're called shluchim, They're emissaries. They are based in like basically everywhere you've ever been to college or everywhere you've ever vacationed. Um, there's you know a Chabad house and there's a, at least one couple running it, or there's a bigger community served by many hundreds of, of Chabad shluchim emissaries and. They do a conference each year where they all come together and they like just basically do like professional development, you know, all the things a big conference would do. And there's one for the women. There's one for the wives who are so instrumental in running these Chabad houses wherever they are. And so... A few of us ladies at Tablet got invited to the banquet, the last night of the conference, of the Key News Conference. And it was at a massive expo center in Edison, New Jersey. In fact,
2: the only expo center in the tri-state area that could actually physically hold that many people.
0: It was like 5,000 women. It was unbelievable. There was a bunch of speakers. There was the best part, which is a roll call, which is where they go through every single city and every single state, every single country that the Chabad is in. You basically like get up and cheer when it's time for you. And for some of the bigger countries, they like blast music. It was wild. It was like the craziest party I've ever been to. And it was so different from anything I've ever done. There was an entire section of the expo hall with a big sign that just said babysitting. Because everyone brings their kids. And this is this amazing thing where it's a bunch of young girls. So like some of the daughters of the women taking care of the younger children. I saw a young teen carrying two babies. And I said, we said, who, who are they? And she said, this is my sister and this is my cousin. As someone who is always trying to figure out what to do with my kid when I do like a work thing or when I do a life thing. And I was just like, how nice this is that you just like it's it's, it's understood that you bring your kid to right. this. And, and like you could for bring. But I literally was like, I think this might be like a deeply feminist gathering. I just wanted to say how nice it was to be at like a women's professional gathering where babysitting was just like on the table.
2: These women are <laughs> the best. They're truly kind of, you know, co-partners in running these amazing centers. My wife attended as well at your table, as you know, and then told me all about it. And the one thing that became clear to me, because because the the male Kindestrischlochen is my absolutely favorite event of the year. And the reason, one of the many, many, many reasons, in addition to the great spirituality and the camaraderie and just like dancing with, you know, thousands and thousands of Jews. The reason I love it and that I learned was a very stark difference from the female version, <laughs> because in our version of the party, there is some drinking. And I understand that at yours, there really kind There of wasn't.
0: was wine on the table. It was very, very sweet. It was not something that anyone was drinking more than just a l'chaim.
1: I saw a lot of pictures on Jewish Twitter. Or Jewish X. What do you call it? Jew X. Yeah, it, looked, it looked like it. <laughs> it. also looked a little bit like a Netflix documentary.
0: Yes. It was all the things. It was a wild Sunday night. There was a, a massive horror at the end. I just felt like it was my version of the Grammys.
2: So my favorite thing about the male Kinnis is the Kochek. <laughs>
0: male Kinnis.
2: Because, you know, yeah.
0: Big Kinnis energy. Big
2: Kinnis energy. Uh, may God forgive us for this <laughs> pun. Um, is the Kochek. Because you come in and you check your black hat and your black coat. And then you have, as I mentioned before, a few l'chaims. And then I asked, well, you know, at the end of the night, like, how does everyone remember like, oh, that was my hat and my coat. And then I was introduced to the great minhag, the great custom, which I have since partaken in, of uh, actually typing your name and phone number inside your hat. Because at some point, someone would be like, oh, hey, Leo, I got your hat. It's like, oh, thanks, man. I have yours too. So now, now my black hat, which I own, has uh, has my name and phone number
0: in it. The only thing I could really compare it to was the Kappa convention I went to before my senior year, where we also did the roll call, where like every chapter and was like Delta Beta. So it was a little bit like that. Also very different. It was a night for the ladies.
2: So the the song goes: There are no single ladies, no single ladies. <laughs> there were no but there were like, like twelve. <laughs> right,
0: Leah. What else, what do you got going
2: on? You know, I um increasingly find myself occupied. By um, sort of an unexpected miracle. Don't look now, but the the Knicks are good again. This is very apropos our episode this week. (laughs) But uh, look, I've been a fan of this team since day one, really. The Knicks have not won a championship since 1973 and have not played in a serious championship game in I don't know how many years, 20 at least. And all of a sudden, this really kind of unlikely team of just really young, amazing talents, play together and seemingly enjoy it and win games and play beautiful games. And it's great because like I would used to go in like at the beginning of the season and the celebrities in celebrity row, which is a disgusting Madison Square Garden, like, oh, my God, like all the famous people here, the celebrities would be like, here is Johnny, who you may remember. And then they'll like put some clip like he played the gardener's assistant on season six of Smallville 18 years ago. And like last week I was like, ladies and gentlemen, Michael J. Fox, Jennifer Grey, Kevin Bacon, Ben Stiller, <laughs> the
1: Pope. And I was like, wow, God, this that's is, how you know the Knicks are good. Incredible. You know, this means that I I will no longer be able to get Knicks tickets. So not
0: <laughs> well, that was my next question. How does it work for you, Joshua Molina, known celebrity? How does it work when you when this happens? Do they like tell you in advance? Is it like your people call their people? How do they know? How do they line up the clip? How does it just like take us behind the scenes?
1: When I was doing Leopoldstadt, I got invited to Knicks games, Rangers games, and uh, Mets games, and would make it onto the jumbotron. But again, it's when it's Slim Pickens, I get the tickets.
0: <laughs> when it's Slim Pickens,
1: Slim, slim Pickens is your uh, is your poker name. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. In fact, Slim Pickens would have gotten tickets before me, where stole still alive.
0: Are you like, don't do a scandal clip, do a West Wing clip? Like, t- how do they do that?
1: At the Mets game that I went to when I was in town last spring, I was given a choice to either throw in the first pitch. Uh, Very high stress. Yes, exactly. And I was like, who needs that? They said, or we can put you on the Jumbotron and use a clip. And so I picked a clip from an episode of The West Wing that Brad Whitford, my nemesis, wrote, in which I have the line, I can't act, I'm a terrible actor. <laughs> and so they, <laughs> I just thought it'd be funny. And so they played that on the Jumbotron the entire stadium. Was, uh, <laughs> and then I allowed Brad to pretend that he had a rent for it in order to prank me.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about, at some point we'll get to the rest of the show, but like you have this ongoing like joke rivalry. How would you describe it?
1: I think it's a love-hate thing. He loves me and I hate him.
0: (laughs) When did it start?
1: The last time I did a Broadway show in 1989 or 1990 when he joined the cast. Uh, yeah, we became fast friends and fast enemies.
0: We've never really talked about your pranking history on this show. We'll get to that. Let's save that. I think we need a, a, maybe like a Purim episode, like a special. Oh, yes. Purim. All Molina, all,
2: Melina, all pranking, like he, singing, dancing. Yeah,
0: because you've never pranked us, which is honestly offensive as your co-host. So we'll get to I that. Just waiting we'll,
1: to, I just to like feel fully comfortable.
0: Let's move beyond ourselves. Let's get to some news of the Jews. News.
3: Of the Jews, oh
2: yeah.
0: NOTJ News of the Jews. Just one story this week. We've talked about this before. I need to bring us back to the most important thing on the genealogical radar right now. Here's a headline from the New York Times 23andMe breach targeted Jewish and Chinese customers, lawsuit says. The genetic testing company 23andMe is being accused in a class action lawsuit of failing to protect the privacy of customers whose personal information was exposed last year in a data breach that affected nearly 7 million profiles. Luckily, it was not 6 million. That would have just been too much. Uh, The lawsuit also accused the company of failing to notify customers with Chinese and Ashkenazi Jewish heritage that they appeared to have been specifically targeted or that their personal genetic information had been compiled into specially curated lists that were shared and sold on the dark web. We do not like to be on specially curated lists. We don't like to be on any list, but especially not curated, Look, I don't, and especially not specially curated. I don't
2: know a lot about this uh, lawsuit, but <laughs> I bet uh, the lawyer, ninety-eight percent Ashkenazi Jew.
0: I mean, his name is literally Jay Edelson. I don't.
1: Know. <laughs> you do. He do, does not need a twenty fee me. I read that this is the single biggest breach of Jewish contact information <laughs> since all the black hats were stolen at last year's. <laughs> right.
0: I just want to give you a little window into, into this lawsuit. A father of two in Florida who is one of the lawsuit's two named plaintiffs said in an interview that the 23andMe he bought himself as a birthday present last year revealed that he had Ashkenazi Jewish heritage. The man, who was identified in the complaint only by his initials, J.L., spoke on the condition of anonymity because he said he feared for his safety. Unclear if that's because of being identified as Ashkenazi Jewish or being you know, part of this massive breach.
2: The man, who is lactose intolerant, spoke in condition of... <laughs>
0: (laughs) He was looking to connect with relatives, he said. So we opted into a feature called DNA Relatives, where select information is shared with other 23andMe customers who might be a close genetic match. The hacker gained access to this feature and got information from about 5.5 million DNA relative profiles. The profiles include a customer's geographic location, birth year, family tree, and uploaded photos. This is like a deep Jewish nightmare. I don't know why I find this so profoundly creepy because it's like, we're all putting our data into the system, like I spit in the thing, like I know I'm part of it. It's not good. What's 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 to worry about? It's
2: just, you know, biometric information about Jews and their relatives available to any malicious hacker online. I'm sure, I'm sure no one with any bad intentions would ever do anything bad with that data.
0: So you haven't gotten to the part about the hacker called Golem. <laughs> so he spells it G-O-L-E-M, but uses an image of Gollum from Lord of the Rings. Clever. Yeah. It's both existentially and like epigenetically terrifying, and then like on the surface, very dangerous and scary because people have your address.
2: If I was uh, Chabad 2.0, I was like, I no longer need to ask, Excuse me, are you Jewish? <laughs> I already know. It's like, Hey, you, to fill in now. <laughs> How funny would it be if it's like actually the Rabbinic Assembly of America? Like the conservative rabbi's movement or whatever that stole this information. Be like, OK, guys,
0: you need to go to our, temple. our
2: promotion campaign did not work. <laughs> you need to attend. This is how we're doing it or else.
0: Isn't like Israel's cybersecurity supposed to be very good? Like, shouldn't they be able to figure out who this golem is? I think they
2: have bigger problems right now. I was going to go on a limb and be like, I think they're preoccupied that at the moment. That
0: is probably true. So. If anyone was affected by this breach, can you tell us? And can you tell us like, can we, I don't know, it's going to be very awkward at family reunions coming up.
2: Can you also tell us why you gave DNA samples to a
1: commercial startup? I did that. I did it too. It turns out I'm Ashkenazi Jew. Yeah, I'm (laughs) 97.1,
0: but I am 1% North African, so I'm a little Sephardic, guys. Not to brag.
1: It's too late, you bragged.
0: I bragged. That's it for News of the Jews. We'll keep you posted on all uh, legal issues involving the Jewish people and their data. are excited to announce Tablet's first ever essay competition, First Personal. Our editors are looking for previously unpublished work by writers living in North America who have never written for Tablet before. They are seeking submissions on the theme of belonging. Where do you feel at home or no longer at home, physically, spiritually, or culturally? How do you find community or a sense that you're a part of something larger than yourself? Are there places where you feel a sense of belonging or alienation or both? Tablet is seeking personal essays about your life and your experiences, and how your thoughts and feelings have evolved over time. Tablet editors will review all submissions and choose their favorite five, which they will edit with the writers. The authors of those five pieces will be brought to New York City to read their story in front of a live audience. A guest judge will then select the winner. The winning essay will be published in Tablet and the winner will receive $500. For more information and to submit your essay, please visit tabletmag.com slash essay contest. great delight to say our Gentile of the week is Alan Houston. He is an NBA all-star who played nine seasons with the New York Knicks, a team he still works with today. He joins us to discuss Fizzle. That stands for Faith, Integrity, Sacrifice, Leadership, and Legacy. It's his new organization, and he joins us on the show along with his Fizzle co-founder and youth ambassador, Jewish teen Nate Sugar. And because he is a teen, also in the studio with us is Nate Sugar's mom, the author Rebecca Sugar. Alan Houston, Nate Sugar, welcome to Unorthodox.
4: Thank you. Thank you so much
3: for having me. It's uh, my pleasure to be here. Excited to be here.
0: Alan, do you want to start with you? Tell us who you are.
3: Well, my name is Alan Houston. I'm from Louisville, Kentucky. I'm a former New York Knicks. Played for the Knicks for nine seasons. Before I was with the Knicks, I was drafted by the Detroit Pistons in 1993. I played for four years at the University of Tennessee. Uh, where my father was my head basketball coach, and he was the first Black head coach in Southeastern Conference history. Grew up two doors down from Muhammad Ali in in Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, so now, currently, I kind of went backwards, and I'm going back to currently. Currently, I'm still working with the Knicks in a development role. My wife and I have seven children. Uh, we are extremely blessed, and uh, the topic for today, which is why I'm so grateful that I got to meet Rebecca and Nate, is uh, I launched a social impact initiative with the acronym of Fizzle: Faith, Integrity, Sacrifice, Leadership, and Legacy. We're a social impact initiative, and our mission is to just incorporate those values for young people to to make them exciting and new and fresh to live them throughout their lives. And uh, met Nate who wanted to be an ambassador through a friend of mine who was a coach. And Nate said, look, I really like what you're doing. It's This message is relevant to all of us in every facet of culture. And I want to get young people to talk more about faith. And I was inspired by that. And um, so here we are.
2: I love this. So, Nate, same question to you. Who are you? And how did you get involved with this amazing?
4: Yeah, well, I don't think my resume is going to be as impressive as Mr. Houston's, but... uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a 17-year-old kid, I go to a Jewish day school called Ramaz, huge Knicks fan, been following them all my life and uh, I play on the basketball team at my school. So huge basketball fan overall and because I'm such a big Knicks fan, obviously I was just looking at their social media page and realized that compared to other NBA teams, their social media pages in terms of their followers and views they were getting, way lower than you'd expect for arguably the most well-known basketball team in the world. And so I came up with this kind of presentation through my trainer who knew Mr. Houston, got me in touch with him, and I gave that presentation to him, and he really loved it. And so he took it to the Knicks, and unfortunately, it didn't, it didn't really work out, that idea, but we stayed in, in touch, and early this fall, we started talking about this faith campaign and kind of what this is going to look like. And my mom uh, was telling me about the National Black Empowerment Council, and I thought this could be a great way you can, you know, we could mix this in and get them involved and they have great networks. And we all got on Zoom and connected and it, it kind of just went from there.
0: I love that the 17 year old was brought in from bad social media. He was like, you guys have to do better. But then you end up making this whole new project, right? Together yeah. where you're sort of talking about something really important but doing it in a way that connects to young people, right? It mm-hmm. sort of brings us back to how do we engage young people today? So I'm curious, what have the two of you learned from working with each other?
4: <laughs> uh, I mean, Mr. Houston is an unbelievable mentor and learning from him and talking to him has been an unbelievable experience. And it's it's been so much fun to meet a guy like him. And, you know, he's a hero of mine, almost, you know, Nick's icon, legend, but Beyond that, just the way he's involved faith in his life and the way he talks about it, it's inspiring.
2: Before I even let you answer, Alan, let me me kind of sharpen the question. I wonder if you could tell us, what is the problem, if you will, that this organization or the challenge that this organization is here to address? If Fizzle does its job correctly, which of course it will, what is it doing for young people?
3: The genesis and the inspiration was my relationship with my father and my parents. I grew up, uh, in the West, in Louisville, Kentucky. And even though we didn't have a lot of money, we had values and we had love. And, and a lot of the things that I carried with me throughout my basketball career, and because I was fortunate enough to play professional basketball at a high level, I just got to see a lot of different facets of people in society. And one thing that was always been passion of mine is, is youth and their plight and, and what they're going through. So I have seven children and every day we're really just trying to see how can we help them be in the best situation prepare them for success but really help them understand what their values who they are their identity their purpose so i would say that especially since covid is especially you know with social media and our mental health state i would say that we're really trying to allow young people to and, and prepare them to really lead the next generation the way our culture deserves right and in order to do that, they have to have an understanding of who they are and their purpose. And according to a certain higher level of thinking and values, they have to be called and set apart from what the culture is providing and suggesting to them. And that's where Nate, you know, and I think a lot of his peers come in. You know, There, there are a lot of young people who are, we're being told that young people are just kind of being dumbed down by social media. But there are a lot of young people who have a lot of aspiration, a lot of ambition. And we want to kind of, allow them to be equipped to use what we have, whether it's AI, technology, culture, whatever it is, in a positive way. And I think being a young person, you're you're influenced by your peers. So we want to like tap into other peer networks who are thinking the same way and thinking about faith and values.
2: So I, I want to talk about faith and values for a second because so much of the culture is kind of gross and crass and seems to move in a very opposite direction. But one reason I like sports, uh, one of many, is that you look at athletes, you look at players, and it seems like there's genuinely a vast proportion of them that are quite serious about their faith. What is the faith part? I get that sport's great for, like, leadership and integrity and personality, all that stuff. But talk a little bit specifically about faith.
4: I guess it starts off with when I step on the court every day, I have to have faith in what I've done in my training and that it's going to translate over to the game. But that only takes you so far. And I think with me, I have to also have faith in in God that he's going to help me do the best I can and my team ultimately, hopefully win.
2: See, it's so interesting because usually, you know, we see players go like, you know, kiss and like point to heavens, like We think like, oh, come on, really? Or, you thank God for this touchdown or this yeah. basket or whatever. But like, you're here telling us no it's legit I'm actually feeling this way.
4: Yeah, I think, you know, I wear a keeper every game and so like I'm a- I think I always have God on my mind before the games, after game, during the game. He definitely is playing a role and it's not just, you know, the obviously the work I put in is helping me get to where where I am, but it's God that's there every step with me.
2: Hashem, help us beat Heschel. Yeah. <laughs> well, they're not so good this year. So, no, we no, don't. I, I,
3: my kids go there and yes, oh. like, yes, that's true. Does that resonate with you, Alan? Is, is that how you feel
2: when, when you play the game?
3: Well, I think that's why, to me, why I wanted Nate to answer because I think it's important for young people and anyone for us to know what, define what faith means. It's It's not just celebrating a moment where I've had success. Right. It's about celebrating and acknowledging where the gift came from in the first place to even be able to participate. You know, my son played for Brown University and he completed his fifth year at Louisville when they lost in the bowl game. And after the game, we all had a moment where we just cried with him because it was his last game. And I told my kids, I said, look, it's a blessing to have something that you are so passionate about that you can feel the strong about to compete in, to commit it to. Right. That's a blessing that God has given us that whether we win or lose, you've had the blessing to compete and to experience these things and to get through them when they got tough. And that is really where we say faith lives in every, it's our foundation of our being. It's a lifeline. And for a lot of what's happening in our world, especially now, with anxiety, depression, you know, we have a lot of young people who are having a lot of struggles as, as well as we all are. but it is the faith that keeps us motivated. It keeps us hopeful. It keeps us courageous, and it does give us our identity. So, I believe when a young person like Nate can really pull on that and inspire other young people to say, "Yeah, that that is really what I feel is important," it can get them through. So, Nate, you're here
2: representing all young people. <laughs> you're here as an ambassador to everyone who's eighteen and Open under. Open up your TikTok. Uh, as, as such, uh, do you feel that the young as they're known. Uh, do you feel this message uh, resonates? Do you feel that, you know, when you talk to your teammates, your friends about God, about the importance of integrity, leadership, all these things that the, the foundation is, is here to promote, does that resonate with them? Or like, oh, come on, man, I just want to win the game so I could get a better scholarship or so I could mm-hmm. have bragging rights or whatever.
4: Yeah. Well, I think for faith, especially for like young people like me and even for myself, we don't really have it all figured out and what our faith is to you. us <laughs> we don't it's a journey i think we don't i don't know what my faith means to me fully yet and someone may may be on, is on a different journey so so yeah, maybe there's a kid on my team who who says oh Shut up. Like, I, I don't want to hear about God right now, you know. But, you know, they're just on a different journey than I am. And the goal is of this whole faith campaign is to allow for more conversation, just to get more people involved and to really, so they, they, they can resonate with it, With So faith. how does it work? How does the campaign actually work? What, what is Fizzle going to do? Yeah, through? so what we have right now is we're having videos be sent in from all sorts of people, young, old, famous, not famous, you know, talking about what their faith means to them to try to ignite this kind of conversation. And, you know, we, we're just starting out. So we still have more rooms to grow uh, and we're, we could see what different possibilities of where this can go. But as of right now, it's kind of just videos being sent in and we're, we're posting that onto social media so that maybe young people who are, you know, scrolling through TikTok or whatever or Instagram come upon one of these videos and, you know, really start to think about it.
0: You have such a, a sense of your own religious identity, right? It imbues all the things you do, whether in school or in your day-to-day life or on the basketball court. And Alan, I'm curious for you, I'm curious a little bit about your own faith journey where you raised religious. Was it always sort of a part of you the way it is now? Did you sort of have some ups and downs along the way? I mean, I think it's unusual to hear a young person speak so forcefully about faith. We don't hear that off, yeah. often. It's very nice. Um, was that sort of the way you were growing up?
3: Um, I may not have been as forceful, but I was kind of aware. And I think that it should not be an anomaly to have mm-hmm. a young person to be so forceful and convicted around their faith. I think mean, that's the goal, right? It's the goal is to, everybody has a measure of faith. Every young person has a measure. It's just that they don't know how much they truly have and where that the source of it And so we want to introduce this and just bring it to the light more. For me, I became a Christian when I was 14 years old. I was brought up in the church in Louisville, Kentucky. And I think for me, I hadn't been introduced to the concept of the tenets of Christianity, but there comes a point where you have to, God, what are you doing personally? I, I, I needed a personal relationship. And that's really where I kind of liken and parallel my faith journey to a person who You've been selected to join this team, but you need to really understand the coach. You need to understand and spend time with the coach. Understand, you know, have that relationship with the coach, and that's where my relationship with my father really helped, and my parents, because I want your know, young people and also to see God as our true Father and one who loves us and cares for us unconditionally. And but there are going to be tough times in life, and that relationship is going to get us through. But for me, I was like nate when i, I was aware but I'm, i may not have been as vocal about it but i was certainly aware and conscious and i think young people i think it's so important that's why i have a heart for it because i knew how much that meant to me to have that awareness at a young age and even though we go through typical adolescent and young adult years we have our challenges we still have the foundation so
2: now it's your turn to help others understand and you're doing this so wonderfully with this organization, uh, before we let you go, I, I would like both of you to take a stab at doing exactly this. If there's a person out there, particularly a young person who, like so many of us right now, is having a bit of a rough time going at it and needs to hear sort of one thing. And it could just be one bit of wisdom or one bit of very practical advice to own in on faith, integrity, leadership, etc. What do you tell
4: them if someone is struggling with their faith I wasn't always you know I didn't grow up and at four years old when I first gained like real consciousness I guess I wasn't like God, I believe in you. And, you know, everyone goes through a journey, like I said before. And I think if you're in a tough time right now, like questioning your faith or looking for just that one thing that's going to tell you God is real or not, I don't think that's what you should be looking for. I think you have to look in little things that happen every day, right, on a daily basis. The fact that, you know, you're able to wake up in the morning and ride a bike or something or any, all those little things are, it's not just a natural course of of life. You know, you see so many People that are made possibly less fortunate than you, and and I think that's God playing that role and to give you what you do have. I think if you're just more grateful, honestly, for what you have, and realize that what you do have is coming from God, that it, it that. can it can really help Contemporary
2: you. Contemporary Israeli slang, by the way, uses this exact word. It's like, let's see how God rolls with this one. Mm-hmm. How's it gonna roll it? <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. out to famous last words.
3: I <laughs> mean, I mean, you know, Nate, Nate, as a point guard, just threw a great assist and i would just <laughs> pick up that pick up that and say look just believe just believe that god does have the best for us the best for you he has a he has a bright future for you and we just have to and that's what faith is right it's not something that we can look and touch and feel and prove it it is a deep deep belief that i'm gonna trust that god does have a future for me and a positive future for me and i just have to stick with that and hold on to that belief and i think if i can say that the things that have you know happened in my life i mean i haven't shared this a lot but just this is recently i had prostate cancer and my father had it and even though you have the treatments that have been proven to be successful there's a measure of you that's saying wow but there was never a doubt in my mind that God has still a future for me and has a future for me. And I think it's it's in the moments where you have those things where you question, you're going to have doubts. But the biggest thing is I never felt like I was going to fail. And I just would encourage young people and older people, you know, just believe, just believe that is that is the gift that God has given us is that gift. It's a gift of faith to believe.
5: Oh,
2: Hashem.
0: That is beautiful. Thank you so much for joining us. Our listeners can check out more about Fizzle at F-I-S-L-L.com. There is great merch, I have to say. There's really, really <laughs> cool NBA merch, um, so you will not be disappointed. The, the social media is great. Alan Houston, Nate Sugar, thank you so much for being on Unorthodox.
4: Thank you. This is awesome.
3: Thank you so much.
2: Got a letter in the mailbox Mailbox Dear Stephanie and Liel Someone's left out Just saying I know it is highly unlikely that you will read this Yeah, no, you know what? Pretty freaking likely However, I figured I would write to you anyway I've started listening to Unorthodox And I love it Because of my OCD I had to start at the beginning. So I'm currently listening with you both and Mark in 2015. Melina, you are the man <laughs> from the future. She's going to be shocked by the time she gets to you. There's
0: a lot of things that happen before that. I then. went <laughs> onto
2: the website to find your email and was sad to see that Mark isn't hosting any longer. However, once Show comes in, I'm sure I will love him <laughs> just as much as I love Mark. Yes, that that is completely uh, correct. You would love him. Don't bet on it. And you would learn to hate, you know, that good-for-nothing Bradley Whitford. I do have eight years of listening to do so. I'm not Jewish. My mother is Vietnamese, and my father was British, Welsh, and Portuguese. But having started an initial Ancestry.com account, which, by the way, I bet was not hacked by <laughs> anyone, I already see Abbas Sheba, and Levi in my father's maternal and paternal lineages. Perhaps that explains my lifelong love for Judaism and the Jewish people. I have a feeling that once I do the DNA test, there will be Sephardic Jewish blood in me. Maybe even Ashkenazi. I, I don't know. Levi. It could be anything. It's interesting listening to your viewpoints in 2015. October 7th has rocked my world. I mourn along with the Jewish people. I follow all the Jewish IG accounts, the IDF, the State of Israel, every influencer. Inav Avizemer, have you heard of her? She's an amazing IG influencer and spreader of Israeli news. She called me a Jews lover. The perfect description. I don't think I've ever wanted to be part of a tribe more. What country other than Israel has soldiers flying from all over the world to protect it? What community comes together like the Jewish community to spread love and not hate? I am in constant awe. I am not sure why I'm writing this. Maybe just to say thank you for teaching me more about Judaism. Maybe to share that I am one of many non-Jews who stands with Israel and the Jewish people. Thank you for your podcast. A gentle, a Gentile fan, Monique. (laughs) Monique, a Gentile and gentle fan. Monique, you would hear this message... Probably seven years from now.
0: Podcast years are like dog years.
2: (laughs) Future Monique, (laughs) this is Liel from the year 2024 saying to you, thank you so much for being not an ally, which is an overused word that I don't like, but truly a friend.
0: By the way, by the time Monique gets to this, she will have done all the DNA testing. She will will realize she is, in fact,
2: she'll be one of us. She
1: will no longer be Gentile or gentle. (laughs) I hope she will write back in seven years and and confirm whether or not she loves me. I think you'll be our
2: favorite.
0: One of my favorite things about this show is when people write in with questions and then they like, it sparks just like a bajillion more discussions. Um, And this from Kay Miranda Gilbert in our Facebook group, I think is the latest contender to do so. Kay Miranda Gilbert brings up something very, very interesting. She notes that when someone dies, she sees Jews say two different versions of the same phrase of condolence. One is, may their memory be a blessing. And made their memory be for a blessing. She writes, the former is idiomatic English, but the latter sounds like it might be a more direct translation from either Hebrew or Yiddish. Would someone please make this Gentile smarter? Um, <laughs> I think this is a question that a lot of Jews have too. So I think we can all get a little smarter, but the comments on there are going off.
2: Although the best one is by Rebecca Wolf, who notes correctly that this is a direct translation from the Hebrew, Zichrono levracha, which, if you translate literally, Rebecca writes, correctly, would be memory of him for blessing, which is exactly how it would sound. So you can be his memory for blessing, of a blessing, is a blessing, just a blessing. I, I think we all understand the sentiment. Rebecca Wilf continues in a very helpful way. She says, the way for is used is a little weird for English speakers. We think of the preposition for as implying use. The cake is for him. Causation, I am sorry, for your loss. And duration, I'm leaving for a week. It doesn't imply causation or duration here. The lack of an indefinite article is also weird for English speakers. We want to insert an a in front of the noun. Ergo, English speakers are very likely to smush the indefinite article into the translation and to feel the weirdness of for, which hovers somewhere between used as, because of, and lasting until in meaning.
0: This thing about like for kind of reminds me of like how weird Jews are about Bye, I'll be by you. That's how a lot of Jewish people, religious and not phrase, like, I'll be at your house. We'll be by you for Shabbos. But
2: not Jews on the bayou who yeah, that's maybe confusing. never say it's entirely
0: It's an entirely different thing. But yeah, so so write in. Help us. Help us parse this. Give us your theories on all this stuff. Unorthodox uh, at tabletmag.com, Write in. Jews, Gentiles alike. Tell us whatever you want, really. And we'll read your letter on the air. And if email's not your style, leave us a message on our listener line, 914 570 4869.
2: So when I was, I don't know, eight or nine or 10, a film came out. That film was Wall Street with Michael Douglas. that profoundly shaped the way I thought about America and money and the world and a lot of other things because, you know, he was very snazzily dressed and says lines like, you have one minute to tell me why I have to listen to you. And those kind of really fit the bill for me. But around the same time, a real world drama, even bigger than the one in the movie, ensued, which involved a gentleman named Michael Milken, who was referred to in the press as the junk bond king, which I thought was a cool thing to be having very little understanding of what junk bonds were and how one became the king of them. Got really, really obsessed with this case. I learned that Michael Milligan was actually the target of an insane out-of-control and uh, largely kind of totally fabricated campaign run by one, Rodolfo Giuliani, who built much of his political clout on this case. So, like manna from heaven, our next guest materialized with an amazing book that honestly reads like a thriller. I think I read this thing in like two hours. This is better than anything I've watched on Netflix. He's Richard Sandler. He's Michael Milken's lawyer. His book is Witness to a Prosecution, The Myth of Michael Milken. He tells us in this book how this extremely successful financier in the 80s, who is well known for developing brand new markets and also for some incredible philanthropy, became the target of the SEC and what this investigation means, not just for Milken, but for the American justice system at large. Richard Sandler, our guest, was Michael Milken's personal lawyer, as well as the executive vice president of the Milken Foundation. And the book is amazing. Here are Joshua Molina and myself trying to pretend like we understand how stocks and bonds work. Richard Sandler, welcome to Unorthodox.
5: Great to be here.
2: So I want to begin with a confession. I was a weird child. No surprises there. I loved nothing more growing up in Israel than stories of Wall Street. This is when the movie Wall Street came out and this kind of financial world was very, very exciting to nine-year-old boys. And the story of Michael Milken was one that really kind of attracted my attention because from the very beginning, I found myself very hard-pressed to understand what exactly happened there. It seemed to make very little sense to me when I read your book, which is one of the most enraging, entertaining, (laughs) engaging uh, books I've read in a very long time, I, I understood just how big the scandal here truly is. So let's start at the very beginning. Who's Michael Milken and what happened
5: to him? So Michael Milken, today he would be referred to as a disruptor. He created an entire way of financing companies that nobody had ever done before. And it provided access to capital many entrepreneurs and companies that never could access the public markets before. And it was somewhat disrupting to established companies, established firms on Wall Street, that this guy could finance people that they didn't finance. He created an industry within an industry that was getting a lot of attention and was very successful. It was also upsetting a lot of people. We're talking about high-yield securities. And most people know these as junk bonds, which is a bit of a misnomer. Unfortunately, it became known as junk bonds. But at the time Mike was doing his research, as a college student, he came across a study that looked at all these ratings of all these securities over time that were rated below investment grade. And almost all these companies were companies, they were known at the time as fallen angels, If you did your research and you had a portfolio of these below investment grade bonds, enough of them would actually, in fact, pay their interest and their principal that would more than compensate you for the risk that you took on these bonds. So he became very interested in this market. When he left Wharton, he went to work for a company at that time called Drexel Firestone.
2: And at that time, you are friends with his brother, following him to college.
5: Yes. I I knew Mike growing up and his brother. His brother and I are the same age. We're very, very dear friends, my closest friend. So I had known him during this period of time. So two things happened in the business. Number one, he went out and was given a certain amount of capital to invest by Drexel in these high-yield securities, which he understood probably better than anybody. And number two, he went out and started meeting with potential investors pension funds, insurance companies, large investors, about the attractiveness of investing in high-yield securities. And his theories, because of the work he did, turned out to be true, and people that invested, including the Drexel firm itself, made outstanding returns at investing in these securities. That led to the idea, maybe we can do original new issues for companies They are not as well-known, they cannot get investment-grade ratings, but we believe are good companies and good investments to loan money to. The gaming industry in Las Vegas, Ted Turner got financing for his idea of a 24-hour news company. He wanted to buy the MGM company. Nobody would have financed him traditionally, but in doing the research, meeting him, Mike and his team came to the conclusion that they were worth financing. Turned out to be correct. The cellular industry, even in the home building industry, there's so many examples of these companies that he was able to finance. And now he's created a market. He's getting all kinds of attention on Wall Street. And anytime you have disruption, the people that are being disrupted or disintermediated are not always that happy. And then you got to the next phase. You had entrepreneurs who said this existing company is undervalued. We think we can make more money. Could we possibly try to take over those companies? And they became known as corporate raiders, and their takeovers, if they were not welcome, were known as hostile takeovers. And that created another kind of disruption in the market. That is the state of the world when the government investigation that I go to in great detail in the book started.
1: You point out in the book that millions of jobs were created by these companies that might not otherwise have been capitalized.
5: Well, actually, during that period of time, Fortune 500 companies, which were basically the companies that could get investment grade ratings, had actually lost jobs over a decade. And the high yield companies had created all the new jobs that had been created during this period of time.
2: And yet here's the establishment not only coining these terms. Junk bonds, corporate raiders, hostile takeovers to kind of create a narrative, uh, but also using all the considerable muscle of government to try and quash down. So uh, take us to one Friday afternoon as you are trying to rush home to your kid's birthday party, hoping to make it a short day. And then uh, you get some unwelcome news.
5: Friday, November 14th, 1986 sitting in the office. At that time, I had left the general practice of law and I went to work with Mike and his brother and the people at Drexel. And I'm sitting in my office and right after the market closed, I came across a tape that really the most successful and revered arbitrageur, risk arbitrageur at the time, Mr. Ivan Boski was pleading guilty to a felony, was involved in insider trading, was paying a large fine to the SEC and was making this deal with the government. Almost simultaneously, I get a call that there are federal marshals downstairs serving subpoenas on the bond Department, on Michael Milken, on Lowell Milken, on a few other people in the building. And we get a call, the same thing is happening in New York at Drexel's office. And I look at the subpoenas. There are SEC subpoenas and there are grand jury subpoenas from the southern district of new york talking about an investigation into violations of something called the RICO statute which i'd never even heard of and our life was changed forever at that moment
2: basically or or generally speaking what was the government alleging
5: well i believe initially the government was alleging insider trading it was a tough quite frankly next 10 years because what i learned is the unbelievable power that the government has in a criminal investigation. Plus, the prosecutors and what happened in our case are not supposed to do this. Okay, it's not it's not appropriate, but they can start leaking information to the media. So now the trial is taking place in the media, in the court of public opinion, and you have no way to defend yourself. You get further and further behind as the process goes on
2: and now america is introduced to this nefarious figure the junk bond king michael milken who did all kinds of you know nefarious things to enrich himself that is largely the portrayal out there as the investigation is going on
5: exactly basically cuz mike himself was a very media shy individual he didn't believe it was in his interest or his family's interest to get a lot of publicity but as they became more and more established on wall street at drexel and they started making more and more money and had more and more success, he drew a lot of attention. He chose not to bring attention to himself, not to talk to the media, not to give into interviews. There's a chapter in the book called Blank Canvas, because as somebody said to me, one of the problems Mike had in this case, because it came so public, was when it started, he was a blank canvas, and the government and the media were able to paint the caricature Of who he was. So the reason I actually just really quickly wrote the book, there was really like two or three reasons. One is there's been so much misinformation about who Michael Milken is, was, and was doing, and what happened in the case. And it was time that history showed what really happened. But number two was to show people the power of the prosecutor, which I had no idea of when this started. When this started, I would believe if I read someone's under a criminal investigation by the US attorney, they must have done something. The US attorney's job is to do the right thing. And if they're going after somebody, they must really believe something terrible happened. I quickly learned of the power of the prosecutor and how that power, especially in high profile cases, can be used in a way which does not seek necessarily the truth, but is trying to seek victory. Because if you win a case, that promotes your career. Doesn't mean the is necessarily dishonest. It just means they're motivated to win the case because that's how they were trained. In our case, the prosecutor, the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, was one, Rudolph Giuliani, who had political ambitions. Everybody at the time knew he had political ambitions. So here we were with an ambitious prosecutor who I do not believe to this day had an idea what a, the difference between a stock and a bond are <laughs> certainly not the difference between a high-yield security and a high-grade security, at the time, found that this case was getting headlines and it was in his interest, in his office interest, to be successful.
2: So give us the uh, the sort of TLDR version of, of a very, very, very long, complicated case. How did it go down?
5: So as the case went on, it was clear, look at I knew Mike. I had been involved with him. I worked with the lawyers. It was clear Mike was not involved in insider trading. But that's not what the government was really out to accept. They were looking at the entire business because they were trying to prove something. And then I saw another tool that the prosecutor has, which is immunizing witnesses. You can call in a witness and say, I think something illegal was going on in this transaction. If you can help me, I can give you immunity, which means you get immunity that I can't prosecute you. You're home free, but you're going to have to help me. But I want you to tell the truth. And if you don't think you can help me, and I find out later you can, then I'm going to indict you with Michael Milken, and I'm going to indict you under RICO, the racketeering statute. So instead of, let's say, a count of securities fraud that carries a three to five year sentence I'm going to hit you with a count of a RICO, which carries a 20-year sentence. So you have this process going on where the government has these tools to number one get information and number two to pressure individuals. And you're still sitting here and you can't do anything. If I go to that same person and say I believe that this happened this way, it would be helpful if you you know remember it the same way I remember it. And and you know maybe you do, maybe you don't. But if you do, it certainly would help me. And, you know, if you don't remember it that way, and if you hurt me, I'm going to find a way to hurt you. I'm going to be indicted for obstruction of justice. Okay. It's, you know, so it's not a level playing field.
2: And so eventually the government had its way.
5: It had its way. So we we went through about three years of intensive investigation, witnesses coming in, people getting immunity, becoming government witnesses. Mike's being vilified in the press almost every single day. The pressure is building. The risks to him are, and his family are tremendous. They indict his brother, who had nothing to do with these transactions, we believe, to bring pressure on Mike. And he's sitting here with the risk of going to trial. Whether you you think you're innocent or not doesn't mean you're not going to lose the trial. And Mike made a tremendous amount of money in 1986. Okay. Hundreds of millions of dollars that Edward Williams said to me. The biggest concern he had about the case was not anything that Mike did because he believed in Mike Milken. But how is he going to convince a jury that someone made that much money and didn't do something wrong? So he has all these pressures on him. And then Drexel, the firm that he worked with, they decided to make a deal with the government and to fire him. And he finally was put in a position where he said, Is there any way that I can cut my losses? Is there any way I can protect my family? Is there any way I can eliminate the risk? And we worked out a plea deal with the government in which he pled to things that were not in the original indictment, all of which had never been subject of criminal indictments before. But he was able to find things, they accepted it, and he pled guilty to those situations. And he received a prison sentence much different than anybody thought was possible. I go through in the book, what he did there and how he went through it, what the process was, what our work was, trying to get the sentence reduced, which we successfully did, and everything that's happened since.
2: How do you live in the aftermath of this? As you said before, you had the reasonable expectation that if the government made some allegation, it had some basis of truth, which strikes me as kind of an essential belief if you are to live in a society, in a country, to you know have basic reasonable respect and trust in its institutions. How does he and how do you go on knowing that this was just a huge circus that brought the whole weight of the system against an innocent man to disastrous consequences?
5: It was very difficult. My son was six years old the day it started. By the time Mike pled and was sentenced, he was 10 years old. By the time Mike got out, He was 12 years old, all right? By the time we went through community service, the SEC came after him again, unsuccessfully, because it was a ridiculous process at that point in time. He got off of probation. My son was 18 years old. And Mike has his children that are similar ages. This whole time when our kids are growing up, we are distracted by this intensive process in which the consequences and risk are so great. And it was tough. But, you know, you get up every day and you do what you have to do. Fortunately, we have solid families. We both have incredible wives. We have great relationships with our children. We never forgot who we were. And our friends supported us. And it allowed us to get through that. And when I say us, you know, it's not even a fair comment. Because what I went through, as difficult as it might have been for me, is a fraction of what Mike had to go through. It's a very tough process, and one of the things I'm trying to point out by writing the book is that the way the system is, if you train young prosecutors that their job is to win the case rather than see justice is done, then you create a situation where you have these bright, young lawyers who are trying to make a career of themselves. They do not have life experiences to really understand what happens if they're wrong. There's no downside to them if they're wrong. But, you know, they're not bad people. They're not dishonest people. They're trained that their job is to win. And they have these tools that allow them to try to do that. The job of the prosecutor is to see that justice is done. But the training is not that. The training is you represent the government and you go get a conviction. And that's the problem with the system. And that's why everybody out there, what happened to Mike could happen to them. Mike's not the first person it happened to. He's not the last person it happened to. It might've happened to him in an unusual way because of the circumstances, but that is what one of the reasons I wrote the book. So people understand the system. And then of course the, the third message I think from the book is look what Mike Milken's done with his life since. He comes out, he has this unbelievable ability to get up. You kick him down, he gets up, he dusts himself off and he goes about trying to be productive and making a difference in the world. But as one thing happened to another, he gets out of prison and he gets diagnosed with prostate cancer. And he's told that he has 12 to 15 months to live. Thank God he went into remission. He was fortunate. He devoted so much energy over the years. He's probably saved millions of men's lives through research of prostate cancer and other cancers. Because he is as productive today as he's ever been, because he did not let this, which is an amazing quality, he did not let this set him back. So he became bitter and felt sorry for himself and sought revenge or whatever. He basically continued to be productive as he is to this day.
2: A moment ago, you said something, and we never forgot who we were. I got to tell you, reading this book, I had a very strong sense Of, well, of course these guys are being prosecuted. These are Jews. These are Jews who came out of nowhere, upset a very big, you know, country club establishment, and now must pay their price for being the outsiders who dared win. Is there something to that?
5: I believe there is. I didn't really go into that in the book a lot because I felt because of things that I've done in the Jewish community myself, because some of the people that had been convicted at the time during the insider trading. Like Dennis Levine, I'm mostly. We're also Jewish. I just I didn't think the point I were going to make I thought would be distracted from. But there's no question when you had this young upstart from California who happened to be Jewish doing what he was doing on Wall Street, and several of his clients were also Jewish. It did not make the establishment happy, so it did not help his situation. So you know this is how the system worked, and. I am very fortunate that I have a publisher that published the book and people have read the book and have had a positive reaction to it because it's not my attempt to clean up anything. It's not my attempt to get back at anyone. It's my attempt to set the record straight as to what really happened and what could happen today.
1: It's a fascinating and convincing read, and you do a very good job of making sometimes complex ideas uh, understandable. Richard Sandler, thank
2: you so much for being our guest.
5: Thank you very much. I appreciate your take of the time.
0: Time for some muzzle tubs. Leah, wanna kick us off?
2: Yes, to Jalen Brunson, the Nick superstar. Married to a Jewish woman, posts his ketubah on Instagram, and this week selected as an NBA all-star for the first time, which made me so, so, so happy until they cut to his dad, who's like three years younger than me, at which point <laughs> I was like, no, I'm no longer happy. I'm just, I'm just a middle-aged man on the couch watching basketball. But Jalen Bonson, New York Knicks, awesome. The ketubah
0: is beautiful, by it's the way. It's beautiful. It's there on the internet. Melina, what do you got? Give us some, give us some shout-outs.
1: I'm inclined to reach across the aisle, political aisle, and uh, shout out Ben Shapiro for his chart-topping rap. If there's one thing that can
0: bring us all together is ill-advised rap. Ill-advised musical forays. Oh, I loved
1: it. It was great.
2: (laughs) One of the rapper raps about his yarmulke. That's very hard to rhyme, yarmulke.
1: I must say, when I finally watched it, he did a better job, Ben Shapiro, than I anticipated. Hats off
2: or hats on which means that the Joshua Molina hip-hop video is not far behind.
1: It's right around the corner.
0: It's literally right around the corner that you're parked in right now.
1: I'm also coming. I'll be by you soon.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And I have a shout out from the Grammys, actually. Montana Tucker, the social media influencer and very proud and outspoken Jew, wore an amazing outfit to the Grammys. And across the whole front was a big yellow ribbon that said, bring them home. So Mazel Tov to you, Montana Tucker, for keeping that message front and center at the Grammys. All right, that's it for us today. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Stephanie Butnick, with Leah Leibovitz and Joshua Molina from a parking lot near you. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. And our team includes Tanya Singer, Courtney Hazel, and Daron Ruskay with help from Sam Hacker and Jordana LaRosa. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Our logo is by Jenny Rosbuck. Our theme music is by Golem, not the one that hacks your personal information, from 23andMe, the amazing Klezmer Funk Band. And our news and mailbox theme are by Steve Barton we love to hear from you. Email us at unorthodoxatablamag.com or leave a message on our listener line, 914-570-4869. That's it for this week. Shalom, friends. All right, we done. We out.